alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Please take your Bible and open it to James chapter 4. It's in the back of your Bible, near Revelation, after the book of Hebrews. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. This is not a, a tight exposition of this text. It's a launching point. We're going to be all over the Bible. I'm going to quote a lot of the Bible, and depending on my time, I might give you time to turn there. I might just start quoting things for the sake of time, okay? But we have a lot of ground to cover. So hear God's word from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we pray now in heaven, Lord, we pray to you. Uh, we are not all in agreement in our understanding of our current socio-political situation today. But our church family agrees, Father, before you on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on our confession of faith, and on our church covenant. And we praise you for that. We pray for people on both sides of the debate on the existence of ethnocentric oppression. Father, may your name be honored as holy. Help us to obey you and do your will on earth as it is in heaven. Help us love you with all that we are and love our neighbors and one another with all discernment and knowledge. Help us care for those truly suffering and pursue justice for those truly oppressed. Spread the gospel through us for the final salvation of the many through repentance from sin toward you and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we need your Holy Spirit. We need his power to shift our minds and take every thought captive to Christ on the issue of ethnic harmony so that we truly honor you and do genuine good for our neighbors and the cause of justice here in Southeast Los Angeles and in our land and in, in this nation that you've called us to. So Father, speak a powerful general word to us and speak a specific word to us here individually, wherever we're at, and to all who will consider these words, this message. May its ripple effect, Father, cause many Christians in confusion to gain clarity for ethnic harmony in our churches and our society for the glory of Christ alone. Mobilize Bethany Baptist Church, Lord, in obedience to your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The society God has sent Bethany Baptist Church to has been called to serve a divided land and a divided society on the issue of race in general and the existence of systemic racism in particular. Does it exist? And what is it? David Platt insightfully observed that the world is debating this issue and the world is far apart on this issue. And then he said, this is in the Together for the Gospel Conference in 2018, that Christians are even farther apart than the world is apart on these issues. That's a tragedy. That should not be. At the same time, it's not surprising. And I don't want to be too hard on us as Christians. It's a tragedy. It shouldn't be. We are together for the gospel. We are together for the Bible and the Lord Jesus and the Great Commission. For conversion of sinners through faith in Jesus and repentance from sin, personally. 
But it's not a surprise that, that we are farther than the world. And I think one of the reasons is because when you have Bible teachers who are confident in biblical truth and confident in the gospel and applying the gospel to our, our cultural situation, when they take it to the concept of ethnic strife, we take that same concept or that same confidence we have in the gospel or on the inerrancy of the Bible, and we take it to the ethnic strife issue, and so we're even more confident than the world is on this topic, even though we're divided. And so we're, we're, we're trying to fight for God on this. We're trying to represent God, and so we have deep convictions that go beyond merely the temporal. Our convictions stretch into eternity and rise high into infinity in terms of God's infinite glory and holiness in the image of God in men and women. And so I get why we're more divided in some ways. The stakes are higher for Christians than, than, than those who are not Christian when we hold our Bible um, dearly. So why are we talking about this issue in our church gathering and from the pulpit? Is this a politicizing of the church and a distraction from obeying Christ and straying from the Bible? I want to tell you, I don't think it is. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, or you could just listen. Again, I'm going everywhere today, so you could just listen if you uh, can't turn there quick enough. That's okay. You could listen to it again later or ask me for my notes. 2 Timothy chapter 4 is where I want to go. But I want to say that this is not something I'm just preaching this year. Every year, except for I think the exception of one year since I've been here, every January on this weekend, we preach against ethnocentric oppression and for ethnic harmony. And then the following Sunday, we preach for the sanctity of human life and against abortion. That's just what we do every year. So this is not something that's a, a cultural hot potato that we're just picking up right now because of the moment, though it is a hot topic in the moment as well. But, and so I just got that pattern from Pastor John Piper at Bethlehem Baptist Church. But more important than following John Piper, listen to what the Bible says in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. I solemnly charge you, Timothy, before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Why? For the time will come, the time and place will come, when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. I am responsible to preach the word. I'm responsible to correct, rebuke, and teach with great patience. That means I'm responsible to teach sound doctrine that faithfully applies the Bible to our current moment so that our people who hear the Bible teaching from this church don't turn aside to myths and lies and merely seek teachers that tell them what they already want to hear. So the question I need to answer here before you for the exhortation I trust God wants me to give you today, and I say that with trembling, is this. Here's the question we need to answer. Does ethnocentric oppression exist today toward African Americans and others in what most people call the black community? I'll tell you why I kind of avoid that term, but um, does, ethno does ethnocentric oppression exist today toward African Americans and those lumped in with African Americans? We have a member of our church who's lumped in with African Americans, but it's Caribbean American. But does ethnocentric oppression exist toward this community, generally speaking, in our country today? That's the question. And the answer is either what? The, either, the answer is either what? Yes, yes or 
No, right? When we're talking about it existing, generally speaking, it's either yes or no. And I use the term ethnocentric oppression instead of racism because that word is debated. And I think Satan, Satan has even just infused into that concept today confusion that when you start talking about it, there's a thousand other debates that start happening right away all at the same time. And so I don't want to be derailed by Satan with, by using confusing and debated words. So I'm just making up my own word. It's not really making up my own word. But ethnocentric oppression. What do I mean by ethnocentric oppression? By ethno, I'm referring to ethnic people groups. And that started at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. By centric, I mean ethno-linguistic cultural groups that put themselves at the center of the world and, um, and um, don't serve others. That's like being self-centered. So I'm not just saying PJ-centered. I could be PJ-centered, but I could also be group-centered to my ethno-linguistic people group and put them at the center. Okay, that's a sin. And so that's what I mean by ethnocentric. But I'm not just saying ethnocentric because there is self-centeredness and there is group-centeredness. I'm talking about ethnocentric oppression. When I say the word oppression, I mean that um, this group-centeredness is unrighteously pressing on and treating and controlling other ethno-linguistic people groups such that they are being oppressed or unrighteously pressed on. So that word and concept, oppression, is all over the Bible. It does not come from Karl Marx. He might use it and define it a different way. Just do a Google search for oppression in your Bible, in any Bible software, and you'll see the word pop up everywhere. And look at what the Bible means by it. That's what I mean by it, okay, not these other philosophers that come up later. So what is ethnocentric oppression? Let me give you a definition of it because I want to argue that it exists today and that you have a moral obligation to see that it exists today and love in light of it. That's where I'm going. So let me define it for you now. Here's the definition, and I'm leaning on the uh, words of another pastor theologian, but I'm modifying it as well. So here's my definition. Ethnocentric oppression is the cum... You're not going to be able to write this down. In case I see you guys' pens ready, you're not going to be able to write this down. It's too long, okay? I'll just send it to you later. The cumulative effect of eth ethnic group-centered practices that become embodied and expressed in the policies, rules, regulations, procedures, expectations, norms, assumptions, guidelines, plans, strategies, objectives, practices, values, standards, narratives, histories, records, and the like. You still with me, Peter John? You got that all written down? And the like, which accordingly disadvantages, causes indifference toward, and or dismisses one ethnic people group and unfairly benefits another particular ethnic people group, okay? So you take all these things I mentioned together, the cumulative effect of them is disadvantaging, causing indifference toward, and dismissing one particular ethnic people group for the unrighteous benefit of another ethnic people group. Now listen, this is still my definition. It does not have to be intentional or self-conscious as a group or as an individual. It is not necessarily individual, personal, irrational prejudice toward other ethnicities. So it doesn't have to be intentional. It doesn't have to say you hate other people, but it can exist in the cultural pattern. The cumulative effect can press on people. So it's the cumulative effect of all these things causing disadvantages, indifference, and or dismissal of one ethnic people group to the benefit of another ethnic people group. So my question again is this. 
does this ethnocentric oppression in fact exist toward the African-American community today, generally speaking? Not every single African-American, but generally speaking, does it exist today? Or does it not exist today? We might start with this. Why is there a sharp disagreement among Christians on this? We, we believe the same Bible. We preach the same gospel. But why did one pastor say that this is the most dangerous thing to attack the church in the last hundred years? That people like what I'm saying is the most dangerous thing. What I'm going to preach today is the most dangerous thing to attack the church in the last hundred years. Well, James tells us, right? I read it in James 4, 1 through 4. Why is there fights and conflict among you? Because we are selfish. Someone's, so whenever there's fight, whenever there's a deep, deep disagreement that gets hostile between two parties, two groups of pe two people or two parties, at least one party is sinning. Oftentimes both are sinning, right? But not always. At least one party is sinning. If not, it's just a peaceful disagreement. Yeah, I disagree with you. You think the Lakers aren't the best. They actually are the best. I disagree with you. Fine. We don't need to fight about it. There's no conflict there. No sin. Unless I say the Lakers are my God and you're disrespecting my God, then I'm going to get sinfully angry at you, right? But if I'm not idolizing them, and you're not idolizing your God, and we're just kind of having a disagreement, there's peaceful disagreement there. But when it gets tense in a hostile way, in a sinful way, in a way that causes strife, it's because one of the two parties at least is given over to wrong motives, selfish desires, or even as James 4, 4 says, um, adultery with the world. A certain worldliness has gotten into at least one or both of the parties that denies and pushes God to the side. Okay, so the, so here's my, here's my, let me just back up and say the question again. Why is there a sharp disagreement among, among Bible-believing be, Christians? I'm saying because at least one party is sinfully wrong. You guys get that? This is why I'm preaching, because I'm preaching about sin. The Bible talks about sin, right? Um, so my, my, what I'm saying is one side on this debate, this heated debate, is sinfully wrong. Not just mistaken misinformation but sinfully wrong you guys with me so far yeah you guys following okay so what is the sin then what is the sin that's dividing christians my answer my answer is that it depends on who's right because it's one of two things either it exists generally towards the african-american community or it doesn't right so i'm going to give you two sets of sins depending on who's right if it doesn't exist, okay, I think it does. I'm going to argue that it does for the rest of our sermon. But let me just tell you that my sin, and if you, if you agree with me, this is a dangerous thing to preach from the pulpit because if I'm wrong, I'm preaching error here, and I'm encouraging our church towards error. So I feel the divine accountability and weightiness of this sermon. Typically, I just say I'll talk about it on the side, but not here. Okay, but what is my sin and the sin of those who say it exists? Here's how one pastor says it. I'm going to say it different than him, but let me give you his, what he's saying my sin is. He's saying the sin of those who affirm these things are they fear man because they don't want to be called racist, and they're scared to be called racist by the world. So they're just going to say that it exists and that we need to act on it. The second sin that he'd say is that I'm siding with a destructive movement that denies personal responsibility, excuses sin, and seeks equality of outcome, and taking what people rightfully earned and giving it to those who did not earn it. So that's what this pastor would say my sin is. The way I would say my sin and those on this side who are putting moral obligations on people, like I'm doing right now in the sermon, 
Here's what I'd say the sin is for me if I'm wrong, even in the sermon. The sin is, if it doesn't exist, if ethnocentric oppression does not exist, generally speaking, towards African-Americans, my sin is I am guilty of teaching something untrue and hoisting false guilt on those who don't see it my way by calling them to see it and to act in ways God is not actually calling them to. So I'm perpetuating a lie that it exists, and I'm making people feel false guilt because they feel bad about it. Hey, you're not loving your neighbor the way you're supposed to love your neighbor. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm going to say today. And, there, and if I'm wrong, if this doesn't exist, I'm lying. I mean, not intentionally. I, I'm not intentionally lying, but I am still legalistically putting a, an obligation, a moral obligation that doesn't exist, biblically speaking. Do you guys get the sin that would be coming from my side if this doesn't, in fact, exist? So you brothers and sisters need to discern this, okay? But I believe and contend that ethnocentric oppression toward African Americans, generally speaking, does in fact exist in our society. And therefore, those who don't, here's, my, here's the other side, here's the sin that I'm saying. Those who don't love their neighbors in light of this oppression are guilty of, and here's, the way, here's what I'm calling the sin. Okay, you gotta get all the words because people, I say it and people just, they'll forget the word I said. They're guilty of unintentional, and inevitable indifference. There's a sin among Christians. If you don't think it exists, you don't see that it exists, you don't love your neighbors in light of the fact that it exists, your African-American neighbors, especially those who are under it, not all African-Americans are under it directly, and it's in different ways, different people, right? But the guilt here is unintentional and inevitable indifference or lack of love toward their neighbors who are unjustly suffering from ethnocentric oppression. I say unintentional because I don't assume they intend to be indifferent. They're not saying I want to be unloving towards my neighbors. They're not saying that. It's unintentional. They're not even aware it's happening. I say inevitable, inevitable because, now follow me here, brothers and sisters. If it actually exists, if ethnocentric oppression exists, well, let me just say it this way. If it doesn't exist, and um, th then it, well, let me, hold on, let me go back to my notes here. If one functionally assumes that ethnocentric oppression does not exist, then it's not that they don't intend to be, not, uh, to, intend to be uncaring for those suffering, but it's impossible to care for someone who claims they are suffering when you don't functionally believe that they're actually suffering. It's not an issue of intent. It's not an issue of motive. You have good motives. I'm not questioning motives. It's an issue, it's an issue of possibility. You cannot possibly care for their suffering when deep down you genuinely don't believe that suffering exists. It's impossible to care for that suffering. You just can't do it. It's the difference between me caring for my children who run to my room at night because they're scared that there's a monster under their bed. Now, should I care for my children? Yes, I should care for my children. If they're really, if, they, if, this, if the fear is gripping their heart, I need to care gently, well, not if they're older children, right? But if they're younger children, right? I need to care gently for my younger children and, and shepherd them through the fear while at the same time saying, you know, uh, you know it's not, it doesn't exist. There is no monster. It's going to be okay, right? But that's different, but I'm assuming it doesn't exist even while I'm treating their fear. That's how you're going to do it if you, if you functionally believe it doesn't exist. But it's, it's different than me caring for someone, caring for another child who might be, you know, eight years old or nine years old, who was, who was abused sexually at seven years old a year ago. And for me to care for that child, it's not just to deal with their fear and trauma every time that relative comes around and they, get, they, they freak out, right? For me to care 
for that child, it's not just to say, I'm going to shepherd your fear. That's a real oppression, is it not? That's a real thing. And if it is real, and I say, oh, it's not real, sweetie. You just gotta, you just gotta trust God. That's not loving that person faithfully, is it? And it's not an issue of motives. It's an issue of whether I actually see reality or not, whether there's actually oppression going on or not. Does that make sense? So it's not an issue of intention or motive. It's an issue of possibility. If you don't functionally believe that it exists, you might have the best motives, and I actually would assume you have the best motives. But you cannot love faithfully. It's not possible when you don't assume or when you don't believe or even assume that it actually exists. All right, what about those who are undecided, PJ? Okay, you're saying for those who say it doesn't exist, for those who say it does. What about those who say, I don't know if it exists or not. I'm just kind of in the middle. I'm thinking about it still. I don't know for sure. I don't want to just jump to one side or the other. So what about me? Anyone here brave enough to say that that's where you're at? Community of grace? You guys don't trust the grace of our church right now? Okay, that's all right. Some of you say that? Okay, one person raised their hand. Um, I assume there's a lot of you there in the middle. What I want to say that is this. Even if you're not sure yet, that's where you're at. You've got to be where you're at. You don't lie and say you are where you're not, right? Even if you're not sure which way it goes, you have a functional assumption one way or the other because the claims just keep coming, right? The situations in our world today and in our neighborhoods, they just keep coming. So whether you're ready or not to decide whether it exists or not, guess what? Pain is happening. People are crying. People are hurting. Church family is hurting. Neighbors are hurting. And so whether you're ready or not to say it exists or not, they're saying either there's a monster under my bed or they're saying I was, I was oppressed and, and uh, unjustly treated and we're being unjustly treated. Whether you know it, whether it exists or not, that person is there in need. And the way you minister to them is going to be off of your functional assumption as to whether it actually exists or not. So even if you're in the middle, just be where you are. Don't lie about it. But just understand that while you're there, you are functionally assuming on one side or the other. And what I want to claim is if you functionally assume it does not exist, even then you're still not able to faithfully love in the way that God calls you to and morally holds you accountable to love your neighbor. So God calls us to discern with love. I got some verses here. I'm not going to have time to read. First Chronicles 12.32 talks about discerning your times when David was going to be king. Luke 12, 54 to 56, Jesus says something to the effect, you checked your iPhone this morning and you saw the temperature and the weather before you came today. You can discern the weather for the day, but you can't discern the times that you're in. And Jesus says it's not good enough to just discern the weather. You got to discern the times you're in, what God is calling you to do right now. Can't just go back to say, well, I know in 1960 I know what I would have said. It's not 1960. It's 2021. You got to decide now and act now with what's going on now. You have to discern the time right now. All right. Let me give you some gospel here and good news before we jump into my argument. Let's get some good news here on this heavy situation. One side is sinfully wrong. And it's not an issue of motive or intent. It's an issue of reality. Is there actually ethnocentric oppression today in our world in our country or not and if it is if it's here then those who say and assume it doesn't are not are sinfully uh, failing to love their neighbors and if it doesn't exist and those who like me are saying that it does we are sinfully foisting false guilt and fictions upon people 
making them feel guilty of what they ought not to be, feel guilty of. Either way, some side is sinning and needs God's forgiveness. And here's the good news. God forgives sinners on both sides of this issue. Amen? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether this issue or another issue, you might be okay and right on this issue and wrong on a bunch of other issues and other obligations, and the wages of sin is death. We all deserve damnation for our sins because God is holy and he holds us to honor him as holy in our lives and in our ways. And so we're sinners damned before God. And here's the good news. God sent his son Jesus to die for sinners like you and I. God sent his son to die for sinners who don't love their neighbors as themselves. Even if they get this issue right, we still don't love our neighbors as ourselves, right? I mean, I might get this issue right and still sin in not loving my neighbors well. Praise God that when Christ hung on the cross, it says he became sin for us. He took the wrath and judgment of God for my lack of love, for my sins of ignorance and my sins that I was fully aware of. He took it all on the cross for me and for you. So if you're not a Christian here, here's the gospel, here's the good news. God died for you. The God-man, Jesus Christ, died for you and rose from the dead. If you will repent from your sins and trust in him, you can have eternal life. You can have forgiveness of sins. And you can keep growing in that forgiveness through the rest of your life, as we Christians need to do. I'll say one more thing as far as good news for, for Christians. So if you're not a Christian, repent and trust in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, let me give you a little bit more good news extension. Not only will God forgive you, God will give us grace to grow in thinking through this issue. So wherever you are on this debate, you're not going to be perfect after this sermon. I'm still not perfect on this. I'm still learning and growing. And we need to keep growing, humbling ourselves before God, trembling at his word, repenting from our sin, holding each other accountable, thinking through these issues together and on our own. Praise God that Jesus walks with us. Amen. Okay, so now, does ethnocentric oppression exist? I believe it does, and I want to teach you why this morning. Let me just say one more thing uh, by way of introduction. I, I confess that I was blinded by this functional assumption that it did, did not exist toward African Americans for 34 years of my life, for 25 years of my Christian life, and for 20, 12 years of my church leadership and pastoral ministry. I was sinfully, unintentionally, yet inevitably indifferent toward the plight and situation of my African-American church members and neighbors and friends. And I was wrong for that. Not intentionally, but still wrong for that. And God, in his grace, chipped away at this for years in my life. I had a few flashpoints. 2001 was a big flashpoint. I'd love to tell you a story. I don't have time. 2008 was another flashpoint. 2012. And then 2014 is when the scales finally came off. And I was able to see the bigger pattern of what's actually going on in our world. And so my prayer is that today would be one of those flashpoints in your life. Maybe not the day the scales fall off. I pray that that would be the case if, if they're there, if they're on. But at some point, as you keep thinking about it, that this Sunday morning would be a watershed moment in your life in thinking about this issue as someone who wants to love God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself. All right, so let me give you four brief arguments well, the last two are a little bit more brief. They're all, they all could be a sermon, but only one of them is really rooted in the Bible. So um, we'll put them all together here. Let me give you four arguments on why it exists, beginning with my four categories of arguments. The Bible and theology is where we're going to begin, okay? 
Now, when I give these arguments, they work far better in dialogue if I'm talking to you one-on-one -on -one than in a sermon because I need to know your objections because there's off-ramps. It's like a freeway and there's off-ramps everywhere in every point of the conversation. And as I'm talking here out loud, I can see your faces. I can't know what you're thinking. And you might take an off-ramp anywhere along this next 40 minutes or 35 minutes. You might take an off-ramp and I won't even know where to catch you and find you. So um, do your best to follow along here. And if you have objections, you have a piece of paper there, write down your objections and then keep tracking with me. Try not to get lost, brothers and sisters, as we try to think about this together. All right, here we go. Four categories of thought. Theology, I'll give you the four categories. Theology, history, sociology, and testimony. Theology, history, sociology, and testimony. We'll take a lot of time with the first one because this is where all the Bible and theology is coming in, okay? So the first one is theology. Here's a theological category for discerning ethnocentric oppression toward African Americans today. A lot of reasons why people can't see that it exists is because we have theological handicaps, theological disabilities, theological blind spots, theological categories that are not functioning in our thinking. So when people claim it, we have other theological categories, personal responsibility, personal accountability, personal choice and agency, which is biblical. We need to fight for that. We have that category and we don't have other categories. And when you don't have these other categories, this doesn't make any sense. These claims don't make any biblical theological sense. So let me give you a few of these categories. I'll just name them. Brothers and sisters, try not to worry about taking notes too much. It's just a lot of information. I'll just name them for you, though. So here are some categories. Ethnocenteredness, unintentional sin, corporate sin, corporate unintentional sin, individual responsibility in corporate sin, and then blind spots. So those are a few categories to think about. Just follow along here, and I'll send you my notes if, if that will help you. All right, so Genesis 11. You could turn there if you like. I'm just, I got I to gotta hustle here. So let me um, go to Genesis 11. This is the Tower of Babylon. If you have an older translation, it's the Tower of Babel. But here, God told people to be fruitful, multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to go around the world filling the world with God's image bearers, and the people refused to, to do that. You know what they did instead? They said, we want to stay all together. We're going to stay together, and we're not going to build a name for God, glorifying him around the world. We're going to stay together. It says in, in Genesis 11:4. it says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth like God wants us to do. So they want to build a name for themselves. They're self-centered, but they're not just self-centered. They're group-centered. It's humanity-centered, not God-centered, right? So what does God do? You guys tell me, those who know the Bible story, what does God do in Genesis 11 to, to, um, to stop their plan? What does he do? He confuses their languages. And so that breaks them up. Now they have to break up in languages. They can't stay together to build a name for themselves. That's how he stops them. You know what God does not do in Genesis 11? He does not take away their self-centeredness. He doesn't take away their group-centeredness. So now it was like one humanity group-centeredness, and now where's the group-centeredness among the what, what groups? The language groups, right? And so now you have ethno-centered groups. It's not one humanity-centered group. It's now based on your, your language. Oh, we're the English speakers. We're the Spanish speakers. We're the Tagalog speakers. We're the Korean speakers. You know, um, we're the French speakers. And so when you have these different languages, now it's like I'm for my group, and I'm against your group. 
And this is where ethnocenteredness based on group-centeredness begins at Genesis 11. First it was human-centeredness, now moving to group-centeredness, all right? So that's what I mean by ethnocenteredness. Now, when I say ethnocentric oppression, that's a step further than ethnocenteredness. Just like everyone can be self-centered, but not everyone can be self-centeredly oppressive. To be oppressive, you need what? Power. So when Israel and Egypt, when, when Egypt enslaved Israel, they could both be ethnocentered. We're better. Israelites are better. Uh, Egyptians are better. They can both be ethnocentered, but only one can be ethnocentrically oppressive. The one that has more power can oppress the weaker, right? Okay, and that's the same thing. So you could both be ethnocentered, but the same thing in the New Testament times where the Israelites and the Jews might hate the Gentiles. They might hate the Roman oppression during Jesus' time. They could hate the Romans. They could be ethnocentered, but not ethnocentrically oppressive because the Ro Romans were more powerful. They just, they ran, it was the Roman Empire, right? And so, do you guys see the difference between ethnocentered and the step further with ethnocentric oppression? Because what I'm arguing here is ethnocentric oppression exists in, uh, among the, uh, towards the African-American community in our nation. Okay, so that's one category. I mean, that, that's one part of the theology. Another part is unintentional sin. Do you know that there's such a thing as unintentional sin? In Leviticus 4, 27 and 28, it says this. Leviticus 4, 27, 28 says, Now if any of the common people sins unintentionally by violating one of the Lord's commands and does what is prohibited and incurs guilt, or, get this, verse 28, if someone informs him about the sin he has committed, then he's to bring an unblemished female goat as his offering for the sin that he has committed. So if he didn't know he was sinning, did he still sin, yes or no? Yes. Do you have to know you're sinning to actually be sinning? No, unintentional sin means you're not aware that you're sinning. You're not intending to sin, but you sinned anyways. Okay, that category is shot in American agency and individualism. I'm the master of my own destiny. I do what I want. I know what I'm doing all the time, and I'm fully cognizant of all that I do. It is impossible for me to sin unintentionally. That is unbiblical. You sin, all the, you sin often in unintentional ways that you are not aware of. Psalm 1912, David says, Lord, who can perceive his unintentional sins? Show me my hidden faults. Convict me and make them known to me so that I can intentionally fight them. Okay, that's Psalm 1912. I was talking to a pastor about this, and I gave him an illustration. I said, you know, if a pastor, 1973 is when Roe v. Wade, we'll talk about this more next week, when Roe v. Wade became legal, abortion became legal across all 50 states in 1973. Evangelical Bible-believing Christians were not on the right side of that question right away. The Roman Catholics were, so-called Catholic, Rome, you know, Roman Papist churches were, so-called churches, Roman Papist groups were, uh, were, were on the right side of that question. But, but um, evangelical Bible believers generally were not. So if I was a pastor in 1974, and one of my members came up to me and said, Pastor, is it okay for me to get an abortion? I might say, well, you know, the Roman Catholics say it's wrong, um, but I don't know. I guess it's okay. I mean, it's legal. You're not disobeying the government. And then they go get an abortion. Did they kill a, an unborn baby, yes or no? Yes. And if you don't know that, come back next week. We'll talk about abortion. Okay. But yes, they did. And as a pastor, am I responsible for telling them it was okay? Even if I didn't know that it was murder or killing a baby? 
I'm still responsible. The baby's still dead. Whether I knew it or not, it doesn't change the fact that an unborn baby was just killed unjustly, right? And so there's that, there's that sense of unintentionality. You might be figuring this out. I don't know if it's a, I don't know if abortion's a sin or not. Well, whether you know it or not, the questions are coming. The situations are here. And you have a moral obligation, especially if you're a pastor. Any pa- we have two pastors here, and one who's a, nominated to be a pastor, and another who wants to plant a church this year to be a pastor, and maybe pastors watching online or later. We have a moral obligation to shepherd now. We don't have the luxury of waiting. The questions are here now. And the issues are here now. And so we might unintentionally sin, but it's still a sin. That's my point. Then we have corporate sin. And let me give you two texts for corporate sin, but I'm not going to have you turn there for the sake of time. Daniel 9, 5 through 6. Daniel prays. Daniel prays. He prays, God, forgive us. Forgive us for breaking the covenant. Forgive us for breaking the covenant. That's what Daniel prays. Now, did Daniel break the covenant? Daniel might be one of the two most faithful people in the Old Testament, at least according to the written record. I don't know of any of Daniel's sins. Joseph might be the other one, though he might have been cocky when he was young. But those are the two most spotless, um, you know, people who who have a good description of their life. And Daniel prays in in Daniel chapter 9, God, forgive us. We have sinned against you. We have worshipped idols. Did Daniel worship idols? No, he never did, as far as we know. But he's saying we have sinned. He's including himself because we have a moral obligation, and so we sin. And so there's such a thing as corporate sin or corporate disobedience that's not individual. Let me give you another example. In Revelation 2, 14 to 16, Jesus rebukes the church for having members who are holding to false teaching. He rebukes the church, and he says to the whole church, church family, you repent, in verse 16 of Revelation 2. You repent for having some of your members holding false teaching. You can say, but I'm not holding false teaching. It's, it's my members who are. Yeah, but still, you're part of the church, and there's a corporate responsibility. There's a collective responsibility. And the fact that they're there in your church, you as a church need to repent for that. And then Jesus even makes a distinction. Even though you as a church repent, I will go judge that person individually. So there's corporate and individual in Revelation 2.16. You all repent. I'm going to judge that person individually. If you don't understand corporate sin, let me give you another example. If God commanded... Okay, I'm a Laker fan, so I'm just going to go back to the Los Angeles Lakers here for my example. If God commanded the Los Angeles Lakers to win a game, win their next game, and they lost, have they disobeyed God's command? Yes or no? Yes, if God commanded them and they disobeyed the command, they've disobeyed God. And do they lose as a team or as an individual? So what if LeBron James, who's their best player, that's debatable, I guess. I see someone rolling their eyes, but he is their best player. Come on. We can debate that later. Um... If he says, but I scored, I scored 40 points, and I had, you know, I, I'm not going to go into details of stats. I just played a really good game. I played the best individual game ever, but our team lost. But I played the best game. I played the best I've ever played. Did LeBron James fail to obey God's command as part of the team or not? Yes, because it wasn't an individual command. It was a team responsibility. What I'm going to argue, what I'll say next week is that If you're an American citizen, I'm an American citizen. My citizenship is primarily in heaven, but I am an American citizen. We as a nation are sinning with abortion. And I say we like not them apart from me. I'm saying we. I'm part of this nation. We are sinning in abortion. It's a corporate category as well as an individual category. You guys following with with corporate responsibility? So when God commands a local church to do something, 
God commands the nation of Israel to do something, they can fail together as a unit, not as individuals. So there's unintentional sin. There's corporate sin. Let me give you another category. I'm going to put these two together. What about corporate unintentional sin? Can that happen? Yes or no? Yes. Let me give you one example or two examples of corporate unintentional sin. 2 Kings 23, verses 21 to 23. You can turn there later if you like. 2 Kings 23, 21 to 23. I told you guys this story two weeks ago or a few weeks ago from the overview on the book of Kings. Remember Josiah found the book of the law? And when he found it, he said he tore his clothes in repentance and said, we have not obeyed the book of the law. Let's go do the Passover as God commands. And it says in 2 Kings, I think I'll turn there to read it. 2 Kings 21, verse 20, or 23, verse 21, it says this. The king commanded the people, observe the Passover of Yahweh your God as written in the book of the covenant. No such Passover, then the commentary says, no such Passover had ever been observed from the time of the judges who judge Israel through the entire time of the kings of Israel and Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Lord's Passover was observed in Jerusalem. Who was commanded to do the Passover? An individual or the whole nation? The nation. It was a corporate command, not an individual command. Individuals make up the, the group, but it was a corporate command for 400 years, at least 300 years. From the time of the judges all the way to Josiah at the end of the, Jude the Judean kingdom. No, they failed every year to observe the Passover. Now, was it intentional or unintentional? Maybe in the beginning it might have been intentional. But if, you've been if you're living in year 200, 200 years of not doing it, good luck in knowing that you're supposed to do it, right? You don't know that, but you're still, are you still responsible, yes or no? Yes, you are if you're the nation of Israel. So there's corporate un unintentional sin. Let me give you one more example. We're a Baptist church. This is Bethany Baptist Church. So I know we all agree on baptism, at least our members here do. But if you're a pedo-baptist and you believe that baptizing babies is okay, there's a command from Jesus to um, go, therefore, and disciple all nations, baptizing them. There's a command to baptize. We disagree on what baptism is. Guess what? Somebody's sinning. Unintentionally, if you call baptizing a baby baptism and it's not real baptism, are you obeying God's command to baptize if that's not actually baptism? No. You're disobeying God's command. And if it is actually baptism to baptize babies then I'm disobeying by leading our church family and our parents to not baptize their babies because that's God's command, right? Either way, we can get wrong on the command, but the command stands. And churches corporately are sinning by failing to baptize whichever side of the debate you, you land on. And obviously, Bethany Baptist Church, you know what side we land on. But the point is, some group is unintentionally corporately sinning by failing to baptize according to what the New Testament actually says baptism is. You guys following me? Okay, so that exists. Let's move on here. Then there's individual responsibility in corporate sin. This is where it's going to get where we're going to apply it to you guys now. So, you could be individually innocent and corporately guilty. So in in Daniel, like I said in Daniel's case when he said God forgive us for breaking the covenant, he never idolized worshiped an idol as we know as far as we know but they were guilty as a nation so in, individually innocent but as part of the corporate group he's guilty and so um that can happen um if you're if you are faithful to god personally and failing corporately at the same time you could also um fail by uh get by being complicit in sin turn to isaiah chapter one turn here because i'm going to give you a moral obligation here 
I want to prick your conscience here, or at least lay this on top of your conscience. So I want you to see it in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 1, or just listen, Isaiah 1, 16 and 17 says this. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight, stop doing evil, learn to do what is good, hear this word, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. If you don't correct the oppressor, are you disobeying God? Does that mean you're the one actually doing the oppressing directly? Yes or no? No. So you're not committing oppression but you're complicit in enabling and perpetuating oppression by not correcting it. Do you guys see that there? That's another sin. It's not the sin of directly oppressing. It's the sin of complicity in not correcting the oppression that you ought to see and you ought to speak out against and act against. And that's the moral obligation I'm laying on you Christians, on us Christians, is if there is ethnocentric oppression that exists, even if you're not the one doing it, you're either complicitly enabling it or you're correcting it with whatever opportunities and resources God gives you to do it. All right, so we believe in, and, and, and yeah, so we believe in corporate sin. And when we talk about corporate, we're talking about systems here. Because what we're talking about with, if you don't have people teaching the Bible, then you're just not doing the Passover year after year after year, century after century. There's a system of not reading the Bible. There's a system of ignorance in the culture in Josiah's time, during the, during the king's time. And so when they're doing that sin every year, the system is working against, like if so if I was born during King David's time or King Solomon's time or King Rehoboam's time, the system is working against me such that I won't even know that we're sinning, right? I can't even correct the wrong corporately because I don't even, I don't have access to a Bible. That's a systemic problem. That's not anyone's, that's not my personal sin, but the system is such that it's enabling the sin and failure to continue. Abortion is a systemic sin. It's easy to point out sins, systemic sins with uh, laws, but it goes beyond laws. By the way, tonight's evening gathering is a Q&A on this issue. So if you have any questions, you could write them down because that's our teaching time tonight is Q&A. All right, I need to move on. I have a few other theological categories here. I think that's enough. We tend to have blind spots and make excuses for our sins with a log in our eye. While we have specks in our, uh, we, we have speck, we see the speck in our brother's eye, but ignore the log in our own eye. Okay, so point is we have theological categories for this sin. Now let me give shorter arguments here and quicker ones, but I need you to track with me here and stay with me for these last three, okay? The second one is history, American history. Here's some American history for discerning ethnocentric oppression toward African Americans today. Let me give you some, a brief flyover. I hope you guys listen to the podcast I sent by email. If not, listen to them. Uh, find a way to get educated on American history on this issue. Let me give you a brief overview. The slave trade with Africans, enslaving and selling Africans to Europeans, going into the New World in, the, in 1619. Slavery in America was justified by Christians and pastors from the Bible. Wrongly. A revolutionary war in this country uh, would not, that would have, that would, um, where they're fighting for the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal and endowed with inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that was only for um, the Anglo-Americans and not those from Africa. So all men, but not quite all men. Then slavery happened until the Civil War. So the Civil War ended slavery, and then you had Reconstruction, and there were no reparations given to, given to the slave, the former slaves, the freed slaves, 
but there was reparations given to the slave masters. Get that. Financial reparations given to the slave masters after the war, but not to the slaves, the, the freed slaves. Then you have Jim Crow laws of segregation, lynching and terrorism, poverty and poor jobs and laws to reemploy former slaves, redlining, redlining where, where uh, um, African Americans were not able to buy houses in certain parts of the, of the city. And then they would have a stagnant housing markets where their houses were not appreciating at the same rate as those across the red line. So now generationally, they're not able to build and accrue wealth. So you have stagnant housing market. The GI Bill after World War II was given to veterans, but not the African-American veterans to, to rebuild their homes after World War II. Farming land and grants were given to, to um, Anglo and European Americans, but not African Americans. Uh, Anglo and European Americans fought for segregation. When integration was forced, they fled. And when they fled, they left an economic vacuum that uh, those who were trying to integrate had to deal with. And poverty struck those areas in ways that wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have collapsed if the uh, European and Anglo-Americans who left didn't leave in vast numbers. So there's economic consequences there. And then you have, the, um, so then you have affirmative action welfare policies later. So that's a brief, way too brief history, right? Now we all agree, tell me if I'm wrong, even if you disagree with my final thing, we all agree that ethnocentric oppression did exist in America, right? Raise your hand if you think it did exist in the past in America. Okay, we all agree there. So here's my historical question to you. Here's the key question, especially if you don't think it exists. At what point in American history did ethnocentric oppression cease to exist as a general oppression toward African Americans in our country? That's a historical question, and this is better in conversation than in a sermon, but you have to answer that question. When did it, we all said it existed, right? Does it just magically stop with time, yes or no? Does time just stop it? No. So where do you say that it stopped? At what point in history, it's a historical question, do you say that it stopped? Typically, I was talking to one of my dear friends yesterday. We had a great conversation. He said, but I don't see it. You have to show it to me. He didn't say you have to show it to me. He's like, I don't see it. And I said, brother, you know that just because you don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The burden of proof historically is not on those who say it exists to prove it. We're not empiricists who just say whatever we see is true, right? Historically, the burden of proof rests on those who say it doesn't exist because we all agree that it did exist, right? Unless you believe that time just um, moves in a momentum to wipe it away, and you'd have to defend that, I would, I would say that that's just not true. Unless you believe that, you have to answer the historical question, at what point in history did it stop being a general oppression towards the general community? Because historically, we all agree it existed. So I want you to write down your answer if, you're not, if you don't believe it exists. You need, to, you need to think of an answer out loud. In a conversation, I could actually put the pressure on you to answer. And the pressure there is not to hurt you, but to help you see what you actually assume. Okay? Okay, let's move on to uh, number three. So that's the historical question to discern ethnocentric oppression. Now the sociology issue for discerning ethnocentric oppression toward African Americans today. On PragerU's list of top five issues facing an African-American community today, and they're on the other side of this of my, my side on this issue, they say three of the top five issues facing the African-American community today are victimology, so blame shifting and excuse making, urban terrorism, black on black crime, and fatherlessness. 
That's what they're saying is the top three issues, the three of the top five issues in the African-American community. We could add to this sociologically speaking, just statistically, uh, disproportionate deficiencies in wealth, employment, education, and incarceration. So here's my question. Here's the question to, to push you on thinking about it. What is the cause of the disproportionate brokenness in, the commu in this community and demographic? What's the cause? Can any of you guys say maybe not your answer, but answers you've heard? What's the cause of the disproportionate um, brokenness and sin in the African-American community? Why is it more there statistically on these, on these issues? Say that again, Angelique. Unjust systems. Okay, and that's what we're kind of arguing for here. Any other answers? What's the, what's the other side's answer? Individual sin, personal choice, personal responsibility. Yeah, that, that would be the other side, right? Let me quote a pastor. This is what he said. If you are an illegitimate child, your mother has had abortions, you have no father in the home, and you're growing up in a society with kids running wild on the streets. Now, these are his words, not mine. Please uh, take no offense at this from me. If the level of illiteracy is extremely high, then what chance do you have? It's a great question. And then he says this. So here's his conclusion. Here's where he's saying it, it's come from. He says, you can't blame someone else for that. That culture needs to get a grip on itself. Stop blaming someone else. Everyone has got issues in life. Take a look at where you are. Find the path to change that. The change begins when you come to Christ. So what is he saying is the issue? It's your own personal responsibility and your group responsibility. You fix it. But before we move too quickly, consider that answer again theologically. Because that doesn't answer the question. If you're saying it's their personal choice, it's their culture that does it. It's the cultural di distinctions, of, it's their cultural uniqueness that causes these things. I want to say, hold on, that's okay, stay there. But let's, let's think it out a little bit more. Let's push a little bit here, okay? Follow me. Are African Americans more sinful than Asian Americans? Yes or no? Just biblically speaking. Like in their DNA, no. Are they more sinful than European Americans? Are they more sinful than Hispanic Americans? No. Then why is there such a drastic disproportionate sin and brokenness in these categories and all these different categories sociologically? Not all of them are sin categories, some are brokenness categories, but why? One pastor friend said, yeah, but not all cultures are equally sinful, PJ. And I was like, okay, I get that. Not all cultures are equal, equally sinful, that's true. But still, my question is, why is, there, why is this cultural pattern of brokenness and sin more pronounced in this community than other communities? If it's not that they're more sinful inherently, and they're not, then why? And my answer is because ethnocentric, ethnocentric oppression is pressing on this community. Now, this doesn't mean we don't have personal responsibility. We all have choices, right? Are we accountable for our sin? Yes or no? Are we accountable for our decisions? Yes or no? Yes, before God and others. We can't make excuses for our sin. Got that. But let's just, let me just give you, a, let's do a thought experiment here. Let's just switch Africans for Asians in 1619, okay? Let's say Asians were, were kidnapped by other Asians in Korea, the Philippines, Japan, China, Laos, Indonesia, Vietnam, and they're, they're shipped on ships here, and then they have to go through a slavery, and people are justifying biblically why Asians are less are inferior and, and deserve to be slaves. Then there's a revolutionary war that they don't get freedom from. Then there's a civil war. Then there's reconstruction without reparation, and then terrorism and um, um, Jim Crow laws and lynching 
and um, redlining and housing values and education and poverty. And then there's a civil rights era with a voting rights act and things like that and, and segregation. And you have all the same exact history. And now you're at 2021. Question. So the Asians don't even know what country they're from anymore. I know I'm a Filipino-American, but if I was 2021 in this situation, I'd be like, I don't know. I'm, I'm Asian-American, but I don't know what country I'm from. If that was us today, Asians, would we be better off sociologically than the Africans? Would the Asians who came be better off sociologically than the Africans? Yes or no? What do you think? Some of you might say yes, but I would just challenge you. The answer is no. Okay. What I mean by that is Asians are not inherently better than Africans. We don't have it in our DNA. You say, well, oh, maybe, you know, if, if you want to just throw out a, a, a thought that's inappropriate and prejudicial is, well, they're hardworking. Well, if your culture was erased, you don't have, your culture is whatever you got here from 1619, and your culture has been erased. Your culture is the last 400 years with the same exact history that the Africans had. So you don't, you can't say your culture back with the Philippines pre-1619, they're, they're this way. There is no Philippines for me in 2021. It's all gone. It's just what I had here. It's just what we had here. So are we better or not? My answer is, if you say Asians are better, then I think that you're saying something about the DNA that's different. And biblically speaking, biologically speaking, no, no group is better than others. I mean, you might think in, in athletics or uh, in other ways, but like in terms of like culturally speaking, culture is, is a set of relationships, right? And patterns. And so what I'm saying here is it, it wouldn't be better for Asians. So in other words, what's the difference? Why, why, why these disparities? The answer is ethnocentric oppression. Your only other option, brothers and sisters, is that African Americans are inferior in some way. That's your only other option to explain it. They sin more. They make worse choices. My question is why? Because they're more sinful? That can't be biblically true. So why? Again, so sociologically, I think the sociological evidence is there. It's debated. I mean, we don't debate. We, we, we don't have to debate the evidence. We're, we're debating the explanation of the evidence. What I'm saying is if you don't have it this way, your only other option is actually perpetuating oppression because it's a bad view of, uh, it's a bad explanation of why the disparities are here. Are you guys following me? Okay. And I have some examples of um, systems that I like to say, like education, public education, tied to poverty, networking for flourishing, cumulative mo momentum bias, criminal justice, even the use of the language, the word race and black and white, is assist languages are systemic. Languages build up structures and systems, and that even perpetuates oppression, I would say. I'm not trying to be the language police, but you just got to understand what's going on. I'm not for all this other craziness with the language, but you got to understand that language is systemic. It does things. It controls thoughts and conversations, which is why we do biblical teaching. Okay, that's my third. So I have theological reasons. What was my second one? Historical reasons. My third one is sociological. And my last one is personal testimony. And this one's short. There are many reliable, honest, God-fearing pastors and Christians who testify honestly that ethnocentric oppression has been experienced personally. So here's my key question to you if you don't think it exists. I want you to answer this question in your mind. How many thoughtful and reliable, in your mind, African-Americans would have to tell you from their personal experience that, they'd suffer, that they're suffering this general pattern of oppression 
till you believe them. How many have to tell you? 50? 100? Do you know 100? Or is it a percentage? Because you might say, well, there's, I don't, I don't want to say names here since I'm public, but there's this one African-American who says this. There's this other one who says it doesn't exist. So is it proportion? Does that have to be 90% or more? And have you considered that those who deny it, not always, but tend to be either middle or upper class financially, which is not the vast majority of those who are, who are testifying to its existence? So that's my testimony claim. If you know Christians who don't want to perpetuate excuses about personal responsibility and blame shifting and victimology, they just want to tell the truth. How many of them do you need to hear before you say, hey, I think something is actually a general pattern in our culture? All right, so let me close. Let me, here's the claim. Let me sum, sum it all up and bring it all together. So I'm saying theologically there's categories for it. Historically, my question is, at what point did it stop if you think it's gone? That's your burden of proof. The third, the third um, argument was sociologically there are differences. Statistically, you can't deny it. The question is, why are there differences? What is your explanation if it's not ethnocentric oppression? I don't think there's another good answer to that, but I'm open to hearing it. And then fourthly, there's a lot of godly people who are not trying to perpetuate politics. They're not arguing for a Democrat or Republican. They're just saying what's happening in their lives and their community. How many of them do you need to hear before you think that there's actually some credibility towards a general pattern that exists? So I'm claiming that ethnocentric oppression toward African-Americans exists and that Christians are responsible. Let me give you two Bible verses. Turn to Philippians 1.9. I'll quote the other one. Don't turn there. Turn to Philippians 1.9. Here's a key. So you're saying, PJ, what's the sin? Here's the sin. I know I'm going over time. Thank you for your patience. We'll wrap it up here, okay? Mark 12.31, second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. That's true. So we need to love our neighbors as ourselves. So how do you do that faithfully, though, if that's a command? Look at Philippians 1.9. And I pray this, that your love, if you're going to love your neighbor as yourselves, that your love will keep on growing in what? Knowledge and what? Every kind of discernment. Love without knowledge and discernment can fail to be love. Do you know that? You can disobey God's command to love, even if you have good intentions, if you're not discerning and knowledgeably loving. Let me give you one example from a friend of mine, who I hope never hears this. I had a friend who is a father, who is a father and he, he had his goal with his child to never, ever let his child hear the word no. So the child was like four years old, and like they would never tell the child no. He never wanted the negativity to be in the child's life. And this child was wreaking havoc everywhere he went. We went to a pizza parlor, and we were eating. Do people still say parlor? Pizza shop, pizza restaurant. Um, we were there. And this kid was like going into where the employees work and the dad was following him, but not telling him no, just trying to guide him to not go without giving him the word no. And I was telling this friend of mine, I was like, your child is going to hear no one day. I was like, if he's driving and a cop pulls him over, he's not going to be like, oh, I don't want you to, I don't want to tell you you're wrong. Like now the, does the dad love his son? Does he, does he have good desires for his son? Yes or no. Does he have sincere desires for his son? Yes or no. Is he loving his son effectively? No, don't use that word, just kidding, yeah. No, no, he's not loving his son effectively because that's not preparing him for the real world, right? That's love without discernment and knowledge. You're not effectively loving your child because it's not according to discernment. 
So you could have good intentions, but if it's not according to reality and truth, it can be a failure to love. And here's my contention. When you need to love your African-American neighbors as yourselves, generally speaking, you deal with each brother and sister and neighbor individually, but generally speaking, if you're going to love them as yourself, you need to discern the ethnocentric oppression that is generally affecting their community. And if you don't discern that, you're not loving with discernment and knowledge. It's like not discerning the, the, child, you know, the child who was abused and saying it's just in your imagination while they're traumatized. And you still genuinely love them. You're just not loving them according to the actual reality of the situation. Does that make sense? So that's a moral call. So um, it's a sin issue for those who fail to love others faithfully. Now, does this mean we need to s um, separate from churches if we disagree? If you disagree with me, do, we, do you need to leave this church? No. Let's work through this. I don't think this is a church dividing issue at this point in history. Does this mean that all the pastors in, the, in BBC have to agree with all the pastors on this? I would say no, not right now this moment, but maybe soon as we keep working through it. It might have to be because we have to shepherd our church on a vision here, and it is a moral, there's, there are moral entailments to this issue. Is the Southern Baptist denomination possibly going to split over this? Yes, it might. I don't know, but it is a real issue. And it's a moral issue. And I think it's okay if it splits over this, if it has to. I mean, I don't necessarily want it to, but this is a moral issue. It's not just a debate about, like, the millennium. Is Jesus going to come before or after um, the millennium? That, there's no moral entailments to that debate. With this debate, there are moral and ethical demands of obedience and disobedience to our King, the Lord Jesus. So here's my call to you. Here's application. Christians, learn and investigate prayerfully and humbly. So if you don't agree with me, on my conclusion, think about it. Learn and pray humbly. And, and give, talk to me. I'm, I'm happy to learn as well uh, on the other side. Secondly, if you are convicted, what should you do? If you're convicted of sin, what should you do? You tell me. Repent. Ask God for forgiveness. Look to Christ who died for your sins and, and rose from the dead for your sins. And here's my last application to you. Don't intercede. And there's a little prickly here, my last application. Don't be an intercessor. Be an advocate. You know the difference between being an intercessor and advocate? An intercessor is someone who's going to be going between the two groups and trying to make sure everyone plays fairly and is nice to each other. That's good. But what I'm saying is this issue is moral, and you have to pick a side. Well, actually, you already have a side is what I'm saying. And so it's not enough to just be in the middle and say, okay, let's make sure we talk nicely to each other and we listen carefully. Good, good. Let's do that. What I'm saying is, if you're going to obey the Lord, you can't just be an intercessor on this issue. You have to advocate for one side or the other because there are moral entailments to it. And what I'm calling you to do is to be an advocate against ethnocentric oppression for those who are being oppressed as a godly Christian and neighbor in our world. Let me give you two verses here. Here's the solution. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Listen to God's word. Here's what he's telling you. Speak up for those who have no voice. For the, for, just, for the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. That's Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. And then let me give you a gracious reality from 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. When I look at you, church family, what I love about looking at you is that you have the Trinitarian of love of God in your hearts. 
And if you can get the discernment and knowledge to aim that Trinitarian love towards our neighbors in this current socio-political moment, God will do good things through us. We are the body of Christ. We're not going to solve it. Bethany Baptist Church is a small church. We're not going to solve the issue, but we can do a lot of good. And God can use the little that we do for his glory. So let's love our neighbors. Let's speak the truth of God in love. And let's love one another in knowledge and discernment according to God's word. Whatever you hear from here, whatever's true, may the Lord take whatever's true. And may you be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And whatever's false, whatever I said that's wrong, may God show you that it's wrong. And may he lead you in the truth. And may he lead me and our church family in the truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving our brothers and sisters here and our friends the endurance for a 68-minute sermon. More importantly, Lord, thank you for giving us your word to meditate on. Lord, lead us in your truth. Hide your words in our heart that we would not sin against you. Help us to focus on Christ and the gospel, and at the same time, be careful to observe everything Christ has commanded us as you commissioned us to in Matthew 28, 20. Help us to love our neighbors as ourselves, Help us to love with discernment and all knowledge. Help us to speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice of all who are dispossessed, if they are truly dispossessed. Help us to speak up and judge righteously and correctly, and help us to defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. God, we need your help. Give our church unity. Give us growth. Use this, Father, to shift our lives for your glory, and use this to bless our neighbors and our society that is deep, in corporate sin on one side or the other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.